This past April, when you called me to serve as your minister, we celebrated with a cake that read, Welcome Home. In many ways, my acceptance of this call is a return home. My teenage years were spent living in this very area. I have fond memories of hanging out with friends at the Friendlies, just a mile away from here, <laughs> of learning to drive on Route 22, of working as a camp counselor in Armonk. Those times were a while ago and receding further into the past every day, and my entire adult life has been spent living elsewhere and visiting Westchester as an outsider. Still, there's something about this area that's home to me. There's something magical and familiar about seeing the sunset behind the Palisades, light glimmering off the Hudson River, though I've never before lived in Peekskill. There's something that feels right about driving down the Taconic Parkway to my office, even though I lived southeast of here and not northwest, and even though I wasn't a Unitarian Universalist in my teens. I found myself on more than one occasion with a silly grin on my face for very little reason, like when I put my New York license plates on my car, <laughs> even though the last ones I had were long enough ago that they featured the Statue of Liberty in the middle of them. So I, for one, am glad to be home. I was glad for the welcome I got in April and again in August from so many in this fellowship. And having returned here, having set myself up in an office here at the fellowship, having purchased a home with my partner, planted a perennial garden, unpacked any number of boxes, and painted four rooms, I am glad to be able to return the favor I'm thrilled to be able, on this day of ingathering as a community, to welcome you home as well. In thinking about the meaning of ingathering, I kept coming back to the notion of home. Of course, I was glad to be home. Of course, I wanted to welcome you to your spiritual home. And of course, I wanted to challenge you to make this place feel like home to new people. And yet, something just didn't sit right with me. So I asked my friends, what does home mean to you? Their answers were, as I expected, thoughtful, often eloquent, sometimes surprising. They quoted song lyrics such as, every spark of friendship and love will die without a home from Arcade Fire. They talked about places they'd called home and what those places meant to them. Several of them talked about their experiences when, as adults, their families moved away from the places where they grew up, their feelings of disconnectedness that they felt in places that were home to their parents, but not to them. My friend and former housemate Lisa wrote that her undergraduate mentor was fond of saying, among other things, that everybody needs a place to stand. She reflected on this saying, telling me, Quote, I remember calling him from the porch where we lived to say that it finally felt like I had a place to stand, a safe place where I felt supported rather than a place of anxiety where I couldn't entirely relax. Most of my friends who responded to this inquiry listed qualities that mean home to them, comfort, belonging, healing from hurt, warmth, a place where people there really know who you are 
One even used the phrase cosmic rightness to describe the feeling he has when he is at home. The community that is this fellowship strives to be a spiritual home for all who seek, though we don't use that word exactly in our mission statement. That home needs to be welcoming, warm, and supportive. Here in this place, with these people, we are both nurtured and challenged, sometimes at the same time. We are, prom we are prompted to think and inspired to feel. We are given space to tell our stories and time to hear the stories of others. Here, we are invited to bring our joy and our pain so that the joy might be increased and the pain lessened. Those are, after all, the things that home is supposed to be, right? Now, as you might guess from the biography I used to introduce myself to you, or by the many of my family and friends who have come here from all around the region for this first worship of my new ministry, my experience of home, <laughs> excuse me, has been all of those things, all of those wonderful things that we want home to be. But not everybody has those experiences. Not everyone gets to have a home that is safe, comfortable, and warm. Not everyone gets to have a home that is stable, where wounds are healed, a place that feels right. For many people, their notion of home is linked to memories of pain and abuse. For some who have been bounced from place to place all their lives, it's a completely foreign concept. For many people, home is a privilege reserved for others. For some, it is a dream that might never become reality. And for some, it's a nightmare that re they relive on a daily basis. It's been impossible for me to think about home at the beginning of September 2007 without noting that August 29th was the second anniversary of the landfall of Hurricane Katrina. These past weeks have been the anniversary of the resulting devastation in New Orleans caused by the failure of that city's protective structures and compounded by the failure of our nation's response. Unlike on the hurricane-ravaged Gulf Coast of Mississippi, the aftermath of Katrina in New Orleans was anything but a natural disaster. And last fall, I had the opportunity to spend two days in New Orleans. I slept while I was there at the First Unitarian Universalist Church, at the time, it was home to the UU Gulf Coast Relief Volunteer Center. And there are three distinct memories of that trip I'll share with you today. First was when I got to that church itself. At the time, more than one year after the flood, the doors to the church were still sheets of plywood. The front door promising in spray-painted letters the eventual rebirth of the church, complete with Neighborhood Social Justice Center. Inside, the first floor was a shell. Eight feet of standing water had meant that everything porous had to be ripped out. Every piece of sheetrock was gone. Most of the wood had to be replaced. Mold that grew in the resulting dampness meant that ductwork, too, was unfit for reuse. Only the tiled bathrooms were left more or less intact. The main floor was not much better the sanctuary had been destroyed. There were no more hymnals, 
No more usable seats, no more piano. There were broken remnants of what used to be stained glass windows. There was barely a floor. Only upstairs was there any sign that this church was carrying on. Upstairs, the six rooms that had been spared flood damage had been converted into a church office, an office for the minister, a small kitchen, and a volunteer center, complete with piles of air mattresses waiting for the promised waves of Unitarian Universalist volunteers. The physical building that was a spiritual home to so many people had been reduced to six small rooms, four of which had been dedicated to the housing and coordinating of those who might come to help their city rebuild. The congregation was forced to respond to this trauma without the comfort of a building in which they could even have regular worship. They were forced to minister to a membership scattered all over the United States. And they did. Traumatized, homeless, and battered with post-traumatic stress disorder prevalent throughout their community, those members of the First UU Church of New Orleans who have been able to return continue to minister to one another. They continue, though their home has still not yet been fully restored, the money to rebuild being slow to come, despite some 15 partner congregations around our association hard at work raising it. Today, as we celebrate our own spiritual home, I ask that we do it with profound gratitude for the home that we have here, for the personal connections and for the physical structure in which we are able to come together as a community. Though we might bemoan the occasional cobweb and the age of our furnace, let us still be grateful for the amazing home that we have. Let us honor our friends in New Orleans by not taking what we have here for granted. Seared into my memory are pictures from the tour of the city I got the next day. From the church building, we drove through downtown New Orleans, seeing some neighborhoods that had been barely affected and others that were rows of empty houses marked unfit for habitation. When we crossed the canal into the lower Ninth Ward, the scene was unlike anything I had ever seen before. Now, mind you, this was one year after Katrina that I visited, not the next week, not the next month, more than a year later. In early October of 2006, the lower Ninth Ward was empty. Here and there was a pile of debris, a smashed car, the remnant of a roof, Every fourth or fifth street had a house being rebuilt on it. They stood out like trees on a vast prairie. Most of the neighborhood was simply empty. Tall weeds growing around the concrete pads on which houses once stood with nothing around them. It was as if this bustling, energetic neighborhood had been completely vaporized. People's lives, people's memories, people's possessions had all been swept away. Where neighbors once watched out for one another and children once played, only concrete pads and scattered trash remained. Those people lucky enough to have survived no longer able to call that place home. This wasn't the only devastated neighborhood we saw. I'm haunted by the memories of St. Bernard Parish, 
where empty, collapsed shells of former strip malls loomed over parking lots filled with FEMA trailers instead of customers. I was astounded, crossing the canal that separates on one side Lakeview, a New Orleans neighborhood of condemned homes and the uninhabitable building that was and will be again the Community Church Unitarian Universalist. That canal separates Metairie, an unflooded city on the right side of the canal, which looks pretty much like Route 117 in Bedford Hills. Car dealerships, supermarkets, restaurants, and the hustle and bustle of American suburban life. But nowhere that I went was as stark as the Lower Ninth Ward. Ginny Corder, moderator of our Association of Congregations, has been one of the many Unitarian Universalists who have spent countless hours volunteering to help New Orleans rebuild over the last two years. She has led group after group to the city, introducing them to community partners and keeping our attention focused on the woefully inadequate response to what happened there two years ago. On August 27th, just before the anniversary of the disaster, Ginny spoke at a press conference where she announced the beginning of a partnership between the Unitarian Universalist Association, the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee, and several local agencies to provide donated furniture to newly rebuilt homes in the Lower Ninth Ward. Here is part of what she said. She said, there are thousands of heroes in devastated neighborhoods throughout New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. I'm moved by these courageous citizens, and I'm humbled by their determination. But I'm also dismayed by the lack of a timely, adequate government response. These neighbors are rebuilding, step by painful step. They're reclaiming their homes and schools. We can all be inspired by their hard work and courage. But we must ask our leaders, why have so many been forced to rebuild alone? Why have so few homeowners received the financial assistance promised to them many months ago? She continued, these questions matter to all of us because a disaster like Katrina can happen anywhere at any time. But the questions matter for a deeper reason as well. Katrina peeled the cover off the other America, the one that is neglected, easily forgotten, the one that rarely makes headlines. But it is an America that still lives and dreams, that works and worships in every state, in every city. It is our America. How we respond to the structural and economic problems exposed by Katrina says a lot about who we are as a nation. If we can't get it right in New Orleans, how will we get it right anywhere else? If we can't get it right in New Orleans, how can we call our society just or compassionate? She concluded, yes, in New Orleans, houses are being repaired, albeit at great personal cost, but many of the houses are still empty. Today's efforts are an attempt to bring attention the insides of the houses, because a home is more than four walls and a roof. Here today, we are celebrating the ability of this community to gather together again after summers of relaxation, time spent with family, 
and a month-long break from regular activities at our fellowship. Since the end of July, this worship hall has been silent on Sunday mornings, and yet with relatively little effort, we are back here today, once again as a community. The Lower Ninth Ward is still mostly unrebuilt, two full years after it fell silent. So as we gather here today, let us take some time to rededicate ourselves to creating the just and compassionate society that we strive for. Let us understand once again the call in our mission statement to provide service to those in need. The last memory of New Orleans I'd like to share is less institutional and more personal. While I was there, I was invited over a friend's house for dinner. I'd met Jafia several years ago doing anti-racism work around our faith movement. She is an amazing trainer and a wonderful, warm person. She really understands what it means to open up your home to other people. The list of people with standing invitations to dinner at her house is astounding, and it includes most of her neighborhood. Whoever shows up gets ample amounts of incredible home-cooked food. So on that night, there were some 15 of us gathered for dinner. I was the only out-of-town guest. There were folks from down the street, her best friend and next-door neighbor, a few Unitarian Universalist young adults who had moved to New Orleans to participate in the relief efforts, and a number of folks from First Church who were struggling with the day-to-day -day reality of living in New Orleans post-Katrina. I heard lots of stories that night, many like the stories we've all heard on the news of people deeply attached to their home, to the place they were born and raised, to the city that had adopted them as young adults years ago, to a culture and a landscape etched into generations of their ancestry. They were stories of deep and profound sadness for a city that was ingrained into their souls. They were stories of longing for a time before the belief that their home was somehow permanent and protected was washed away by the floods. These were stories that New Yorkers, whose own recent horror will have its sixth anniversary on Tuesday, should be able to connect to. Stories of a home that was violated, that was destroyed, a safety that is no more of the unthinkable happening in one's own backyard. And yet they were also stories of hope. The folks I met that night told me about people coming together in the community to help one another, about neighbors whose homes had been spared, housing those who had lost everything. They told me about the groups they were working with, rebuilding, restoring schools, fighting for racial equity, working for economic justice, there was hope in their voices that they might once again have a place to call home. This past June at our General Assembly in Portland, Jafia and I were talking about her home. She said to me, Michael, there are ways I can drive from home to work that I wouldn't ever know what happened two years ago. I could, if I wanted to, choose the streets on higher ground and the ones that have been rebuilt to take every morning and every evening and pretend like everything was just fine. 
I choose not to go that way because I can't forget that my home is still not whole. I can't pretend that things are all just fine again. Do me a favor and let your new congregation know that. And so I have. As we gather today here in our community's spiritual home, let us take a moment to remember those who do not have what we do. Let us dedicate ourselves to creating a world in which every person can have a place of safety and healing to call their own. Let us use the pain of our past as a source of empathy for those who are in need today. Let us gather in gratitude and in hope, in service and in compassion. And finally, let us choose always to keep our eyes open to the world around us, to keep our feet firmly planted on the earth, and to live fully, making our home and our community open to all. So may it be.